Hey, what's up? This is Ryan with Help the Harm Podcast. Uh, so glad that you're listening today. Got a great interview for you. And before we start, I just want to say one quick thing. So you might notice we've got some new music on the podcast. This is the opening to a song by Elin Jewell from her album, Sea of Tears. So not only do I think that Elin is an incredible musician, but she supports what we're doing. When I reached out asking for permission to use this song, I got a resounding yes. And this felt so good, I mean, for me, because I love her music and I've seen her live, but also just knowing that there's artists and musicians out there that support the work that we're doing and that want to help us build a movement. So I definitely encourage you to check out Elin Jewell um, in the show notes and stick around to the end of the episode. You get to hear the complete song. All right, let's get the show started. I'm joined today by Melinda Tuhus, who's been an environmental activist for decades. For the past five years, has been focusing on the fight to slow climate change. And she's been working with Beyond Extreme Energy, which we'll talk about as well. As a reporter for many years, Melinda's covered climate stories like mountaintop removal in West Virginia and the aftermath of hurricanes Katrina and Sandy. Melinda, welcome to Halt the Harm podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today and hear about uh, your work with Beyond Extreme Energy and also a bit about your history as a reporter. Could you start by telling us a little bit more about who you are uh, sort of leading up to your work with environmental issues? Okay, well, I'm 68, so I have been around for a while. And um, I don't know, I think there were there were different things that kind of led me to be very concerned about environmental issues and to report on them. Uh, I was just thinking as, as you were introducing me that one thing that I hadn't really thought about before was that when I was young, um, our family traveled to a lot of national parks and I got to see some, you know, just amazing places. Um, they were incredibly beautiful. At the time, I didn't know or think anything about how they got established and who got removed for them to be established. So now my consciousness has been raised about, you know, um, removal of a lot of Native people and um, just, you know, that that nothing is easy, I guess, and nothing is... Uh, clear-cut um, in terms of the experiences that we have and, and the things that form us. But uh, mm. I do think that that was one thing that led me to really appreciate how beautiful the Earth is and how lucky we are to be here <laughs> and that, um, you know, it's important to take care of it. And another thing that I think was important was I grew up in Buffalo, out, right outside of Buffalo, and um that actually was very close to uh, the area around Niagara Falls, Love Canal, which was infamous. And in the 70s, um, you know, the news broke about how it, the whole community, the whole, all the houses were built on a toxic waste dump. And, you know, that sort of brought me closer to concerns around uh, what we've called, I guess, environmental justice for a long time. Hmm. Um, and just... For for a lot of those issues, and certainly for climate change, the realization that the people who have had the least respons- who have the least responsibility for creating the problems, whatever they are, um, seem to always suffer the worst 
consequences, worse than first. So there were just a lot of different things, I think. Um, and, mm. and in my reporting, just, you know, what I always tried to do was um, have the people who were the most affected uh, on the front lines telling their stories. So I got to meet an amazing number of people. I still am meeting an amazing number of people yeah. who have been uh, fighting, like, mountaintop removal, mm. especially. I, I've, I've been to West Virginia five times and, you know, have seen a lot of the same people. We've lost a couple of really big fighters uh, in that arena, which is really, really sad. Um, but, uh, you know, Judy Bonds and um, right. Larry... Gibson. Larry Gibson. Gibson. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, so. I met both of them down there when I went down there for a summer to, to be involved with the listening project. And it was so powerful, the, the people that I met there. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It, I, I, that was such a privilege for me. And, uh, yeah. And it's also nice when I go back now, you know, I get welcomed back and, you know, I feel like people are my friends and, um, and also, I love mountains, so <laughs> yeah, so, I love going to West Virginia. So. so you probably have that sticker too, that I heart mountains. I do, I do. I have a button, and I have a sticker, and <laughs> yeah, you know, on my car, on my refrigerator. So did you uh, did you start covering climate stories? Uh, you know, were you covering these issues before Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy, or did those incidences? sort of spark you to, to turn your reporting toward climate issues? Um, I was doing some things before that. I've been working on a weekly radio show for 20 years, um, and so every week I produce a, a five- to six-minute interview segment with a you know an introduction. And I've just been, you know, drawn to doing that kind of reporting even, even before that. But um, certainly going – I was in – I was down in, uh, I can't even remember, it was three or four times down in um, in uh, Louisiana. And just not only in, in New Orleans, but <clears throat> and as, I, as people probably are aware, it wasn't really the strength of the hurricane that was so devastating. It was the failure of the levees. And spending a lot of time on the bayou as well on every trip and meeting some of the Native Americans who lived there. There was one family, the, the chief of one small tribe had a lot of, land and she had just dozens of people camping out you know on her property and helping um you know uh get the homes and rebuild them and so um i also took a uh, a canoe trip down uh bayou lafouche which is one of the main waterways there and going into the gulf and uh that was really enlightening um you know just seeing the how how the water has come in to fill in the uh in t- taking over the land you know they say it's it's a football field every 45 minutes that goes underwater and it's as a result of several different factors one of the biggest factors is you know all the oil and gas development that they they've built um you know uh they've built waterways into where they set up you know their operations and there's also natural subsidence of the land, and then there's also sea level rise. So it's pretty devastating. Um, and I guess actually not too long ago there was a report of there's a small, a different tribe than the people that I knew, but a small 
group of people in Louisiana that are going to be relocated, and they're our country's first official climate refugees. So it is a it is a um, not a very difficult situation down there. So you know, going there and meeting people and seeing with my own eyes some of these um, impacts. In, in Sandy, I spent I was down. Uh, well, that's not far from me, so that was easy to get to. Uh, was down there several times, and um, I usually in all these trips, I've or most of them, I've the disaster recovery trips. I've volunteered as well as reported, so I get to meet people, you know, in very um, really terrible straits and hear their stories. And so um, going to where Sandy, the impact of Sandy, we were out on, you know, on the beach and um, in the far Rockaways and, you know, there was no, there were, there was no electricity that, you know, there's no power of any kind. There were, well, there were some generators, which are so polluting, horrible, noisy, horrible, but other than that, you know, everything was pitch dark um, as soon as the sun went down. And that went on for an unbelievably long time. I mean, you would think in the, one of the biggest city in our country that, and one of the richest cities in our country, they would be able to get it together quicker. But it went on for months. So that was and, – and even though I spent short amounts of time there, just even, you know, a, f- a few days at a time, just seeing – you know, being in that situation and living like that was – pretty um instructive yeah i can definitely relate because that short time that i was in west virginia meeting people and um, especially i think because i was doing a listening project but seeing firsthand what's going on and i mean now it's like we can see firsthand all over the place because we have so many issues that make our communities on the front lines like for example pipelines and oil and gas infrastructure is just everywhere and this sort of ties into something I wanted to ask you about, which is about our campaigns, because focusing on climate change can be really hard because it's such a big issue. It feels really out of our control. And so, you know, the fact that there are so many pipelines, um, so many campaigns have focused on pipelines. And I'm wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah, well, the the bad news is the same as the good news. You know, the bad news is that there's pipeline projects all over the country, but the good news is that that brings people out to fight them all over the country. And I actually, um, so I think focusing on a project and often one near where one lives is is a very empowering thing to do. I was really pleased to be able to participate in two um, one was in January this this year, and one was in March um, up in Northwest Massachusetts to stop the NED pipeline, Northeast Energy Direct pipeline, that was a Kinder Morgan project. And guess what? We stopped it. <laughs> I don't know. I nice. mean, there were other there were other factors, but I do believe. I mean, people were really up in arms, and um, the local response. I mean, on the marches, you know, almost all the people were local people. Um, I'm part of Beyond Extreme Energy, and we took six of us from two. Two of us were as far away as North Carolina, um, Connecticut, and New Jersey, and we all drove up and participated in the three-day Martin Luther King weekend march in, back in January. And it was great because we got to meet the people that were fighting this. We got to really learn about the project. I think that's the best way to learn about things. It is. It is overwhelming um, to to know that there's so many projects out there, but you know, if you spend like three days walking with people and eating with people and sleeping with people, you really, you know, get more of the story. And that's a really, I think, a really 
good way to get involved. Um, and uh, they, in turn, really, really appreciated that we had come, some of us from very far away, to, uh, you know, to join them, to stand in solidarity with them. And uh, it was very moving. I, it was one of the highlights. I just thought it was great. I'm really glad you brought that up, Melinda, because that's such a big part of what it means to be doing this network, you know, Health to Harm Network, but any kind of network is is being able to bring the energy that we have with a local campaign and then respond to a call to action and show up and support other campaigns as well. Of all the different kinds of infrastructure projects we could be mobilizing around, why are pipelines significant? Well, because I, I, I think the history in the last few years is that we've actually stopped a lot of them. Um, and there's been quotes from, you know, industry leaders and government officials saying that the biggest, um, there was a survey, an industry survey, and the industry people responded and said the biggest obstacle to getting these pipelines up and running is, you know, uh, I don't know, they called it resident opposition or, you know, just community opposition. Um, and that was really confirmed, that was affirming of what we're doing. So, you know, there's been, I, I can't reel them off right now, but there's just, there's been a couple dozen projects that have either been outright stopped, you know, defeated or, um, or you know, slowed down. And, uh, you know, they've had to wait till they got this or that in order before they could continue. I mean, the downside is that, you know, it's never really over, 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 um, because they could come back and, um, you know, come up with a new plan or something. But um, it it makes it more expensive for the companies when they have all these delays. And it's I've actually been quite heartened by, you know, starting with, um, well, it wasn't even starting with, but the biggest news was, you know, defeating the KXL pipe, the Keystone XL pipeline last just about a year ago, last November. Um, when President Obama finally officially ended it. Um, But there's been many others. And uh, the fact that, you know, whether it's an oil pipeline or a gas pipeline, we have to keep all that, all those fossil fuels in the ground. And so just like with, um, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline fight now, I mean, there's different points of view. Some people who are opposed just want the route changed. Other people are saying, you know, there is no route (laughs) It's acceptable. We have to just stop it. Um, and, you know, the company's saying, well, it'd be much more, it would be much uh, less expensive and much safer if we can send all this oil through, you know, this exploding oil through a pipeline rather than, you know, on rail cars or trucks, which is certainly true, but that's not a reason to do it, in my opinion, and in, in the opinion of a lot of people who are out there now. So, right. um, you know, it's, um, and, and it's great to, these kind of, sites can bring you together with people you wouldn't meet otherwise and you know to hear their stories and their points of view and they're not always the same i mean there's overlapping interests but you know they're not exactly the same in terms of what what people are looking for so Mm -hmm. so what's it like what was it like for you getting involved with uh a, a more activist organization like going to marches and going to um protests could you describe the first time you showed up to one of those events or meetings or what that was like well, for you? Yeah, I mean, that wasn't the, I mean, the first time I was involved in a protest, I was 19 years old, and that was more of a issue, <laughs> you know, because I was kind of shy and, um, 
I just knew I was against the war in Vietnam, and I sort of got, and then I ended up transferring to a very activist campus, and so I got, I got very involved, um, and so that was sort of my history, my legacy. I've been involved in a bunch of things, you know, sometimes more than others uh, over the last, you know, forty-five years or whatever. Oh yeah, years, <laughs> yeah, fifty years. Um, but going, you know, to these events. I mean, I got involved. Uh, I, I went to um, the last day of the two-week protest in front of the White House against the Keystone XL back in um, in 2011, and you know I got arrested, and um, and that was the first time I'd been arrested in um, 12, 13 years. I got arrested uh, during the um, the war in Iraq, also. So. Um, you know, it's it's not like I get arrested all the time, but it's not like the movement I've been involved in recently was was my baptism. So it, it wasn't um, that different for me. It's just that the subject is different, but, you know, a lot of the ways of operating, you know, are, are really not that different. Although I have to say we're pretty creative. <laughs> the <laughs> extreme energy in particular is very creative. Um, <laughs> And you know we're we kind of are more in your face than a lot of other environmental groups or other any other kind of group, I guess. Um, and that's you know that's exciting. That's um, I get out of my comfort zone doing a lot of that stuff. You're gonna have to tell me more because what do you mean? <laughs> well, you know we do um, we do direct actions. We do things. We risk arrest. Um, but you know, sometimes that's the easiest thing. If you're if you're blocking a doorway, like at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, and you refuse to leave at the third, you know, announcement by the police, then you'll get arrested. But that's, you know, that's not really that scary because you sort of know what's happening. Predicted, um, yeah. Yeah, but I've you know, there's other things. Um, we we were um, bird dogging some of the com- all the commissioners actually. There's only well, there's supposed to be five commissioners at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Then there were four, and now there's three, and they haven't replaced the other two. But uh, earlier this year, we did things like hand-deliver um, valentines to the commissioners' homes, asking them to, you know, love the earth and love the people and stop approving all of these, you know, earth-killing and people-polluting projects. Um, <laughs> that was, that was at, you know, in February. And then in May, when we were in D.C., we again visited their homes and um you know some other groups uh were very upset with us and they thought that that was sort of crossed the line that we shouldn't do that and then you know we were just thinking about the people who live in these communities where these pipelines go through where they have no say in them where they cut down their trees they you know build they dig up their land (laughs) they put these pipelines in that you know, in many cases, the gas that goes through them isn't even for those communities. It's going for export. And so we're thinking, you know, hey, relax, you know, we're not, we're still completely nonviolent. We, um, you know, we act out of love. We try to be amusing and lighthearted and still, you know, make some very serious points. So, you know, if people, I, I just think, you know, we're in a climate emergency and I don't think, we need to worry that much about, um, you know, sticking to the same old, same old, like just having a picket line around a building or, I don't know, signing a petition or whatever. 
I think we need to do um, some things that maybe haven't been done before or haven't been done as much. And I, I just try to think about the people who I, the people I know whose lives have been ruined by, or at least temporarily for several years ruined by, you know, these climate disasters and, yeah. and people in other countries who are in real danger of losing their their whole nation. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, we need to get a grip here on what's, you know, what's considered acceptable and what's not considered accept- what's considered not acceptable. Yeah, this touches on a debate in, in a lot of activist groups around tactics. And, you know, it seems like you're walking a fine line between you're dealing with a very serious issue, but you're bringing some humor and some creativity into it, and you're taking some risks and thinking outside the box. Um, yeah, how, how, do you, um, how do you make sense of that like question of whether or not you're going to be taken seriously? Like if you're confronting the FERC, are you trying to get them to take you seriously, or are you just trying to disrupt them? And I guess what do you feel is the, the benefit and maybe some of the drawbacks of using that approach? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we've well, we have done so many different things um, and taken so many different approaches that I mean, we know that they take us seriously because a, a couple of years ago already, the former chair said we have a situation referring to us, um, you know, coming into <laughs> the meetings to um, you know when we would disrupt them and we we would get escorted out and you know nobody ever got arrested doing that. We had. Um, there were there have been arrests mostly outside of the FERC building, like I said, if you know, if we don't disperse and we're blocking doors and stuff. But um one woman was actually arrested who shouldn't have been, wasn't doing anything wrong, um, and was inside the building and um she got uh, it, it was a bench trial before a judge and he he really scolded the authorities for even arresting her. I mean he really <laughs> thought it was outrageous. So that was a, actually a win for us too. Um but you know, we one of the other things we did was um, last year, a year ago, September, uh, a dozen of our members did an 18-day water-only fast uh, while sitting in front of FERC, um, and that was pretty serious. I wasn't one of them. I was doing support uh, for that. Um, but you know, and we had we had a whole bunch of different handouts because it went on for three weeks, um, and we got rid of thousands and thousands of these handouts. And you know, a lot of the same people took the different ones because a lot of the same people were the ones going by every day. But then there were other people too, and it um, it actually coincided with uh, Pope Francis's visit to um, to Washington at the end, and so it was really. Uh, is very, very intense, even though I wasn't fasting more than a day. Um, it was just a very intense time. And, you know, people were kind of, the people who were fasting were kind of putting it all on the line. And uh, we actually, one of the fasters had a 10-minute a conversation with the current chair as he was going out to lunch. <laughs> so... Um, and, you know, he said something like, you know, I, I appreciate your commitment. I appreciate, you know, that you, you're taking this very seriously. I just don't agree with you. And, you know, I mean, didn't change his heart yet. But, um, you know, we do, we do have people who have gone by who have told us, you know, that they support us and that they agree with us. And um, so, you know, for all the years that I've been involved in different kind of movements, it's, 
you always hear, you know, you feel like you're not making any progress, and then one day everything shifts. So the idea of, um, you know, being out there, being public, I mean, I, I'm, I got involved, you know, way, way before the Internet age, so I, I still, you know, believe that it's really important. I mean, I think you can do cool stuff on social media, but I think, you know, you have to combine that with really being out in the street. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, it's really, I mean, there's a lot of, it's, there's a lot of slogging, there's a lot of sacrifices, um, you know, there's just the time you're doing that, that you, you know, you're not doing other things you could be doing. But I also think it's really um, empowering, really uplifting. I mean, it's, I, I was just reading something, I mean, I knew this already, but people who, um, you know, have a goal bigger than just, you know, their own entertainment or enjoyment or their own individual survival are usually much happier people. <laughs> and, huh. you know, I think it's, um, that's true for me. So if someone wanted to get involved with Beyond Extreme Energy, where would they go and what would be the first step for them? Well, they could go to our website. It's just beyondextremeenergy.org. We're also on Facebook, um, you know, Beyond Extreme Energy. Um, and uh, there's just, um, there's a lot of information there. There's a, there's a blog that they can sort of follow along. We have a lot of interesting different people post on that, different actions and different thoughts. Um, and there's contact information. Yeah, and we would love to have more people involved. We're mostly an East Coast um, group. I mean, living in states, well, not necessarily on the coast, but living in states that are along the, you know, the eastern seaboard, although we do have a few people from elsewhere. Um, and most for two years, all of our main actions were in D.C. at FERC, but we're kind of branching out. And uh-huh. uh, all of us, actually, many of us have been very involved in organizing and participating in actions, you know, no DAPL actions against the Dakota Access Pipeline in, in where, towns where we live, like New York, D.C., Philadelphia, uh, New Haven, Hartford, um, a lot of other places. Um, so, you know, we're kind of, I, I don't know, it feels like a little spider web. We're sort of branching out. We're meeting people. They're meeting us. Um, you know, we're working together. And, um, you know, we, we feel like, um, you know, this is something. A lot of us are retired or close to being retired. And so, um, you know, this is, this is basically something that our new job, basically, <laughs> you know, that we spend a lot of time on. And then there's also a lot of young people um, who are very committed. And, you know, as much as I could try to understand what it feels like to be like 20 and confronting this climate crisis. It, I just, it's sort of, in a way, it's beyond my understanding. I just know that it's a very, uh, very tough thing. And um, it's important, you know, for everybody to get involved and do whatever people can do. Yeah. Um, the sub- when it looks like on, on your website, you can follow the, the blog so you could get the latest updates just by uh, following with their email address, but also an email newsletter here. So that looks pretty yep. cool. Yep. Yeah, I just and, got um, on the site myself. I, I was just going to say this. The subhead of our name is people taking action to retire fossil fuels, and action is highlighted. I like <laughs> so, that. Yeah, I like that. That's and, what we're all about, yeah. And it sounds like, too, if you're part of a, an, org- an organization, that you can endorse Beyond Extreme Energy as well. 
So yes, that's, we that's would love that. Cool. And give us money. Yeah, <laughs> we make need a, money. Make a donation. <laughs> right. Yeah, we have two staff people that we scramble to you know get the funding for. Then they're doing really really important work. So yeah, that's important. Yeah. In fact, let me just say, if I could, that we just started a, just started a brand new uh, funding mechanism, um, which is uh, a way to donate directly to support each or both of our full-time staff people, Jimmy Betts and Lee Stewart. And you can find out all that. It's right on the front page. You can uh, find out how to do that and uh, learn about them. And it's it's sort of a little bit more personal approach to um, – to trying to put some funding together for these amazing young people. Yeah, this is great because you learn about who they are, and, and so it's not right, just right. these anonymous staff members that you're sort of donating, yeah, and, but you're like actually learning about, oh, this is a person, and this is their story. So we're going to have to interview them on the show, I guess. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, they would both be fabulous people to interview. This is cool. I like I like that you have it set up so that people can – can really support the organization in very direct ways, like $10 a month or something like that, and, and sort of put it toward helping to support having a, a staff member help to coordinate all this. Because it's a lot right. of work. It's really, it, I mean, I've been, I'm part of a number of volunteer organizations, and um, one of them, which is a, a radio station, there's two staff, and those staff are the ones that really make it all possible. Because the volunteer energy works really well when there's somebody that's just there all the time coordinating and just helping everything flow. I totally agree. My, my community radio station has one, one paid person or one and a half paid people and volunteers do everything else. Yeah, it's important. Can you tell us a little more about how Beyond Extreme Energy works? Like what sort of model do you use for organizing? How do you stay in touch? How do you build the trust that's required to carry out these oh, actions? Yeah, a lot of us... Um, there was a core of people that kind of knew each other, um, and a lot of us sort of met. Well, I've been friends for over 40 years with two of the key people who, you know, organized it, but um, mostly people haven't known each other that long. Um, one of the ways uh, people came together was in 2013, there was a, it was called Walk for Our Grandchildren against the, um, the Keystone XL pipeline, and it was a wonderful walk uh, all through Maryland into D.C. and culminated in um, a uh, direct action where 54 people got arrested um, in front of a different target. But um, uh, then there was also, in 2014, there was this walk across America for um, uh, the Great March for Climate Action, I guess it was called, and it was a lot. It was again. I didn't participate, but it was a lot of. Uh, I think mostly young people and mostly much older people. And when they got to D.C. Uh, in November of 2014, that's when we did our first Beyond Extreme Energy action, and a lot of them joined us, and that was really powerful. Um, so those are two strands. Um, I, uh, other people have also, you know, give credit to the Occupy movement for sort of raising awareness and, you know, getting the whole idea of getting in the street, getting getting out and doing direct action. And so there were a lot of those things. And we do our meetings, um, all of our meetings are on the phone <laughs> because we live all over the place. And then when we come together to do actions, we usually live together in a, you know, live, sleep in a church and, you know, meet uh, in person and carry out the actions for, you know, five days or nine days, or in the case of the fast, it was 18 days. Um, and then we had our first 
Well, we had a, a short one-day retreat a couple years ago, but we had a two-and-a-half-day retreat uh, this past August, and that was great. Um, it was most of the core people, and, um, you know, one day was all about sort of personal interactions, and then another day was more about strategy, and, um, you know, it really is good to be get together in person, and more recently, we've been doing subsets of us have been doing actions, you know, all in different parts of the country, you know, closer. Like I go to New York, I go to Philadelphia, and I see my BXE brothers and sisters along with, you know, the local activists doing those actions. So there's different ways. Um, we do have, I, I think we run the best phone meetings of any group I've ever experienced. Um, <laughs> they're very respectful um, people. You know, they just they just go really well. And after our retreat, we actually... Had, we, we developed a plan to encourage the voices of young people and women because uh, the meetings were being dominated more by the older white men, and now we have a, a system that really is ever since late August, so it's a couple months now. It's been working pretty well, and it, it, it's actually in, increased participation, I think. Did you learn about this somewhere, or did it come up naturally? How did you start? That? We figured it out. Nice. <laughs> um, it, we had a really great facilitator um, mm-hmm. for the first day, the interpersonal day, and um, she was giving us different kinds of feedback. And then the next morning, she said, "I'm going to step out of my facilitator role and just observe, and I won't, I won't say anything unless I feel there's a real urgency to break in." And so we just talked about it among ourselves, and we figured out a system. So <laughs> worked really well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us a little bit about how you work, too. I think it's so great to hear examples of groups that aren't just in urgency mode. I mean, because you get so much done. And so you're showing us that by taking that time to have a retreat and to look at your group dynamics and to figure out ways to bring out more participation, that that's not actually wasting time. It's actually increasing the capacity of your organization. I think that's a really good lesson for all of us, and myself included, to reflect on. So thank you. So is there anything else you'd like to share as we wrap up this conversation today? No, I think it's been a good conversation. I appreciate your questions, and, you know, it always helps me clarify my thoughts when I have these kind of conversations. So thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Melinda. It was great talking to you. Have a great day. Okay, yeah. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Take care. Okay, see you later. Bye. All right. Well, that wraps up the interview with Melinda Tuhus and this episode of Health the Harm podcast. And I know I said this last time, but I'm really honored that you are giving us your ears for this episode that you're listening through, that you're especially you're listening all the way to the end. That's awesome. And uh, and if you're not if you're not already a part of Health the Harm, then I just want to take a moment and encourage you to check out healththeharm.net. You can join as a leader in the network and you can take advantage of all the different services and you can have access to all the different services and resources and connections that a network has to offer. So check it out at healththeharm.net. Also, this podcast is a collaboration with Eco Defense Radio, which is a local project in Ithaca, New York that I'm a part of. I'm really proud to be a part of that project. There's six of us working on a show every week to put together news and interviews about taking action 
in defense of the land. So if that's something that you're interested in as well, check out ecodefenseradio.org. Now, as promised, here's the complete song, One of Those Days, from Elin Jewell, from her album Sea of Tears. Enjoy. Stay. 